Welcome everybody to the Good Data Podcast. Today is episode four of our green series. Anyone new to this series, welcome. To give a brief overview, we started with software and how well-written software is actually a green imperative, contrary to what a lot of people probably think. Then we zoomed out to the server hardware and now we're zooming out one more level to the electrical systems. Today's episode is touching on data center electrical infrastructure and how that's, in a lot of ways, the next most important piece of the green footprint of a data center, or arguably the absolute most important piece. If you're interested in reducing your carbon footprint and not actually interested in efficiency, then the electrical infrastructure is probably the best way to go. If you're all about efficiency, look somewhere other than electrical infrastructure. If you don't believe that CO2 causes global warming or severe environmental impact, feel free not to listen. And then do a Google search for the atmosphere of Venus or the absorption and re-emission of like 20, uh, what is it, 2060 nanometer light by CO2 and like a billion other things. It's complicated, so I get there's room for debate, but before you argue, just read the million pages that have already been written and then give me your opinion. For everybody else, let's go. So today we're focusing on electrical infrastructure and I'm calling that infrastructure everything from the receptacle in the wall that's providing power to a rack or in the wall or under the floor or in a cable tray or wherever that uh, electrical output is and everything from there going all the way back to the power generation whether that's the grid or whether that's a solar field that's out in your parking lot or whatever type of generation that is everywhere between those two points are the systems and infrastructure that we're talking about today so if we take a zoom out perspective from that equipment rack the first really important piece of equipment that we get to is the UPS the uninterruptible power supply that provides battery backup for the data center operational equipment. And this is an interesting topic for me because it's one that's changed a lot, but at the same time uh, has a lot of similarities for the past. For the most part, UPS systems have been based on a transition from the grid power to a DC power to a battery, and that battery uh, and DC power then get converted back into AC and that goes to the equipment. That's still a good system. It still works. We've gotten some efficiency improvements out of it. One of the first is, like I talked about last time, the use of three-phase power rather than single-phase. Three-phase power doesn't require the same amount of conditioning uh, because there's a uh, steady 
voltage that goes all the way across the waveforms of the three phases. You don't have to provide the same amount of switching or power conditioning on the other side. So three phase UPSs are more efficient than single phase UPSs, just about always. There's another wrinkle that was brought into this, uh, I think about five years ago, that is, I think, a very interesting one. It's the three-tier topology that was brought in by Mitsubishi and Toshiba. Uh, it, in a way, it increases the efficiency just by improving the way that pulse width modulation happens within a UPS. So pulse width modulation is the algorithm that provides a alternating current out of what was a DC wave. And what you do with that is you take that that DC current, which is a, it's not even a wave, I, I misspoke. It's a single voltage that goes across the DC spectrum. And you if you cut that up, if you chop that up, you can actually create this alternating current because you have parts of the waveform that don't have any pulse width. The, you know, you're, you're basically taking a single unified DC and on the parts where there should be no voltage, you have no pulse. And then as you gear up to the parts that are supposed to have high voltage, you add little bits of additional pulse and you use a Fourier transform, which is just a mathematical device, to create as close as possible to that 60 hertz sine wave that you really want to have. And the problem with that is that you have to have really, really fast switching something. It, it can be, uh, and it, it's, at this point, the best efficiency comes from a transistor-style switch. So that switch can operate at, let's say, uh, 15 kilohertz. Then every, that means that 15,000 times every second, it's chopping up that wave. So the higher the kilohertz are, the more efficient it's going to be because the more it chops up that wave and makes it closer to a actual sinusoidal waveform. I'm getting a little bit in the weeds again, but I like this stuff, so I'm going to keep going. <laughs> what the three-phase topology did from Mitsubishi was actually it took a single jump to get to a, a certain uh, voltage and made that part of the sine wave, and then it had an additional higher voltage jump so that you're actually making a much smoother waveform out of the voltages that are available. That has created UPSs that are closer to 97% efficient as opposed to some of them used to be 80% efficient. So that increases the efficiency of the entire system because like we said, if you are providing more efficient power to a given space, then you don't have to cool that power. You're saving on your cooling costs as well. There are other ways that UPS manufacturers we're using to improve the efficiency of UPSs. And one of them was what is basically a fast switching offline UPS, which is you're, you're almost using a static switch, a switch that can change from your normal line side voltage power 
and then switch over to UPS really quickly. Uh, the problem with that is that you need very, very good power conditioning uh, or else things like capacitors will explode. So uh, one of those, you know, it's an eco mode or something like that where it's actually uh, an offline power source for normal use and then it'll switch to the inverter when required. Problem with that, and it's something that I have not witnessed firsthand, but I, I know people have witnessed it firsthand, is that that puts a lot of strain on the UPS. And if there is some kind of transit at the same time that there's a power loss, you can actually get those capacitors to explode. And there were a couple years there where there were a lot of UPS explosions for that reason, because the capacitors would go past their uh, capacity and uh, they would just overload and capacitors really do have a breaking point because they're actually, there's uh, some sort of um, electric potential that happens there that builds up on one side and then jumps to the other. So if more builds up on the one side and it still has to discharge, it can really have a lot of potential behind it and just wreck your whole UPS. So the eco mode is something that I personally don't recommend. I think it's a real problem and something that's been problematic for a lot of installations. There, there are other types of UPSs though, and we can talk about those briefly. There's a rotary UPS, which is actually a flywheel. It's a literally spinning large mass you know, very, very heavy rock, basically, that's spinning. And uh, it's kept spinning just by the uh, continued application of electricity with a motor. Uh, but once that motor stops, it has enough continued momentum to keep turning the generator on the other side that is continuing to put a very, very good sinusoidal waveform out the other side. And eventually it'll slow down, and a lot of these rotary UPSs only last 5, 10, 20 seconds. But that can give the generator enough time to then kick on and provide power for a longer-term basis and then recharge the UPS itself. So rotary also got better. Those have improved because you can use uh, electromagnetic bearings, there are opportunities for more efficient rotary UPSs, but those are still not as efficient as your high-quality, high-efficiency UPSs. Another problem with UPSs is that because they are being loaded only to about 40% of the load at most, because there's two different UPSs that are providing power on a redundant basis. So that if one of them fails, it'll fail over to the other. But that means that the UPS, let's say on the A side, should only ever have 40% of the load on it, unless there's an outage on the, on the B side, at which point it'll go to 80%. So that's a problem. There's the issue of the efficiency of the actual transformers. Transformers in a UPS or anywhere work better 
when they are delivered uh, close to 80%. That's just the way that the efficiency curve on a transformer works because it's an inductive load because it's basically has a, a mag magnetic properties within that uh, transformer that allow power to change from one voltage to another. There's no wires that are connecting. It's a waveform that is induced on the load side from the line side. And that requires uh, a certain amount of, it's basically electromagnetism to create that vibration, you know, the, the oscillation to create that 60 hertz wave on the load side. Even if the, there is absolutely no power on that UPS, it's still taking, it's still getting some amount of impedance and uh, it's taking, drawing power just to do nothing. So there's a curve there where it, it starts at that baseline where it's still taking some load and then as you add actual line load to it, you get more and more and more close to the best possible efficiency, which uh, in some of these is 97% or 98%. So the, the part of the problem with the way that UPSs run is just that, that they're not running at full load. That's part of the reason that in one of the early specs of open compute, the recommendation was to have one side fed from the UPS, the A side, let's say, and the B side of the server hardware be fed from a straight line voltage. So another substation, a whole other electrical distribution, maybe even another electrical provider brings a substation to the facility and supplies that second line. So they're 100% independent from the A side to the B side. But what that does is hopefully, if they are 100% independent, no matter what happens to that original electric line that's coming into your facility, the other one should not be affected by it. So it gains you a certain amount of reliability while still keeping your UPS at that ideal, let's say 80% load. The problem with that <laughs> is that what if, uh, what if it is the other side that fails, then you're, you're stuck with your UPS. If it's the UPS side, you have, if you don't have a generator on the, if your UPS side fails, then the other side may not have power as well if it's a more systemic outage. So this is not protecting you from a systemic outage to the grid like the one that happened in 2004 that took out most of the uh, northeast of the United States. So if you put all that together, the UPS itself is not the best place to find efficiency. It's actually a really dangerous place because that's the most important piece of your entire data center for a reliability point of view. You have to make sure that your UPS is always providing very reliable power. And to put that in jeopardy, 
really becomes a problem very quickly. So we personally, I personally suggest uh, not messing with that, but changing some of the other pieces of the puzzle to make that whole UPS architecture more efficient. And one of the best ways that we think to do that is to actually change to DC distribution so that instead of providing power on a AC to DC to AC UPS, just going from AC to DC and providing everything on DC, and that removes that extra step of conversion back to AC and then within the server back to DC. So there are a couple ways to do this. Uh, one of the methods is to put a basically a, a 40, 48 volt rectifier in the back of the rack so that you're delivering whatever line side power is and then you have some sort of batteries and efficient large-scale power supply in the UPS that's at the rack level and then you just provide unified 48 volt power to the servers in that rack itself and that does work really well the problem is that most servers that you know a normal enterprise customer is using don't have those 48 volt power supplies it's just not the way that they're made telecom systems usually do work on those 48 volt connections but the server manufacturers often have a 120 volt to 08 volt input for their compute that's not always the case and it's changing some a lot of the big server manufacturers are actually including 48 volt or 360 volt power inputs so that they can have distribution on the DC side there are also DC busways that can take DC power and distribute it via a large overhead bus to exactly where it needs to go. And all those things together really help to take us away from that paradigm of AC distribution with all of those losses that are inherent to it. Now going up the line, how do you get the utility power to that UPS? So on a very large facility, there tend to be a lot of transformation steps for power. You tend to have, let's say, 69 kV, kilovolt, power coming to the campus. That has to get transformed down usually to 480 to go to the UPS. And then the UPS, somewhere down the line, transforms that down to 208-120 to get to the servers themselves. The problem with that is that all those transformation steps actually have their own issues with efficiency. They all lose some amount of power each step. And especially when they're not loaded to a high enough efficiency to really take advantage of the efficiencies of a transformer. So what some people have done is to take the highest possible voltage as close to the equipment as possible so that you're taking let's say uh, 4160 volt power and delivering it close to your your DC rectifiers that are in the rack or, or whatever that is or 
you're, you're getting it as close to that as possible so that you have less losses of impedance on those lower voltage. It's not perfect. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it means that you have very dangerous electrical equipment closer to your very sensitive uh, computer equipment. Uh, but if you have a large enough facility, it does make sense to transmit power on those larger voltages for a couple reasons. One is that it means your wire sizes are much smaller, so you don't have to pay as much for cable. It also means that you have fewer pieces to your distribution. So instead of having a 60, 69 kV down to a 13.2, down to a 480, you could just go uh, as close as possible from uh, 13.2 to 480 and in, or, or to your, your 480 into your DC UPS so that you don't have to go through all those conversion steps. And in a reliability sense, having fewer components almost always means that you're going to increase your reliability because each component along the way, no matter what it is, has some sort of failure on it. It might be 30 years mean time between failure. It might be 10 years for batteries. It might be five years. But the fewer pieces there are, if you multiply all those failure potentials together, there's going to be less total possibility of failure. So I like reduced number of components. I like the idea of making electrical distribution simpler. I like the idea of making fewer transformation steps. But that only really works on the hyperscale. If it's a regular, let's say, enterprise data center less than 2 megawatts, that's not going to work. That's another reason why the hyperscale can be more efficient, why cloud can be more efficient, because they can take those economies of scale, that lack of transformer loss, and really pay it forward into the customized hardware that they already have. We have to take a break. We'll be back in a moment on good data. Today's episode is brought to you by GreenLane Design. GreenLane is a full-stack design bid build company focusing on data centers. They've developed projects from BOD to finished turnkey build for many different types of companies, including co-location, high density, and enterprise. If you would like to get a free assessment, go to greenlanedesign.com, click on contact, and mention the podcast. And we're back. So we've talked about the electrical distribution, the UPS, but what about generation? There are always at least two different sources of generations in a data center. There is the utility, and then there's the backup generation. Most of the time, very much most of the time, that backup generation is a diesel generator. And that's because they're fairly inexpensive. You can get diesel fuel and refill it in case there's some kind of a problem. You can... Uh, always run them. You can get the fuel anywhere. You uh, there, There's somewhat less maintenance on a diesel generator. They're just very reliable and well-understood pieces of equipment. The problem, however, <laughs> is that you have to run those generators at least 
you should say at least annually, but really most people run them for at least a half hour every week or two weeks, which, and, and you really are best served by running them on load via a load bank at least some point. So you're, no matter what, putting a fair amount of diesel exhaust into the atmosphere whenever you do those load bank tests or, or whatever type of test you do. And that is pollution. It's one of the few pieces of pollution that a data center actually has. Otherwise, the pollution that comes out is mostly in the electrical hardware itself once it gets thrown away. So that exhaust is one problem. Then also the extraction of the fuel. There's a, there's a green issue with that, that if the fuel has to be extracted in a way that is efficient. You know, if, if you're taking crude from Saudi Arabia, that is actually more efficient than the tar sands from, from Canada. So there is some kind of give and take there between what type of extraction actually takes place. And then there's the refinement. Refined diesel is actually, it's, it's less intensive to refine diesel than it is to refine the gas that goes into your car. But there is still some amount of refinement that needs to happen, which is another step of uh, inefficiency and pollution that takes place. Another one that I just want to note real quick is that a diesel generator requires a pretty substantial block heater. So because diesel actually works on compression, so it, it needs to be warm to run. That's why when you have a big pickup truck that runs in a diesel engine or a semi truck, you'll actually plug that in before you start it up so you can heat up that block. Which means that you're running that block heater all the time because the ideal startup temperature for a for a generator is 150 degrees. So you need to be heating up that entire cooling system, the entire uh, system within the generator to 150 degrees all the time, no matter what, dead of winter, dead of summer, you're running some kind of heating element, which is sometimes in a, in a big diesel generator, it's a lot of a lot of power. Let's say a, a 1500 watt generator or 1500 kW generator could be running, let's say, 40 kW all the time just for that block heater. So that's just money out the window to make sure that no matter what, that diesel generator works. There's also other kinds of generators than diesel. Uh, one of the, probably I'd say the next most common that I see is a natural gas generator, which is still an engine block with a, it's, it's basically the same design as a diesel generator, except it runs on compressed natural gas or, or just natural gas from the utility. And the, the positives of that are that Natural gas is actually a, a cleaner type of burning than diesel. There's less exhaust that goes into the air, and it's generally extracted in the U.S., so you don't have those political concerns. Um, the 
the block doesn't need to be as hot because it ha it doesn't require compression to run so it creates its own heat and uh, doesn't need as as much heat inside um, there's a number of benefits to natural gas but you need an awful lot of natural gas to make those things work those are bigger engines they require more literal volume for the com for the uh, combustion chambers they just are uh, n more expensive for the the same amount of power output they still are out there they're still used they're still good but you don't tend to see a two megawatt natural gas generator because they'd be so big and so expensive that they generally are prohibitive and also you need so much natural gas to fire one of those the gas lines have to be medium pressure and they have to be huge they're really intense gas and it's expensive <laughs> to have that big gas line available on the street so a lot of utilities don't provide enough natural gas for you to even think about having natural gas generators at your site so on a larger mega scale data center it's just not possible now here let's talk about a hybrid between UPS and generation which is fuel cells so fuel cells can start up very quickly so they're more similar to a UPS than a backup generator in some ways they can start near instantaneously and they can actually be coupled with UPS's to be instantaneous start so that they're always providing the exact same power no matter what fuel cells can either run on hydrogen some run on natural gas uh, so you can take that natural gas and instead of having a generator for it you can have a much smaller box that takes still the same basic volume of natural gas but that will convert it uh, to hydrogen and oxygen without and carbon without the same exhaust profile as a natural gas generator that's good <laughs> but those still are not they, they take up a lot of room they are expensive they have a lot of maintenance associated with them you have to change out the elements in them fairly often which also is an expense uh, there's been a lot of investment in it and it's a good start but it's uh, <laughs> a number of places where I have seen them installed they the biggest complaint is the amount of um, the amount that they have to continually replace those parts so there's also hydrogen fuel cells the great thing about hydrogen fuel cells is that hydrogen is pretty cheap it's the most abundant element in the universe it's uh, it's part of water so it's just very available and as much as people think of the Hindenburg of a huge hydrogen explosion it's actually safer than you would think for a couple of reasons one is that the heat the the flame that tends to happen is very light so it tends to go straight up so if there's nothing over top of a hydrogen explosion 
it's not going to spread to other things. Um, another is that uh, it can be extinguished. There, you know, it, it will explode in a big bang, but sometimes that'll actually put the fire out because it'll exhaust all the oxygen out of the room very quickly. It Hydrogen takes up more room than either natural gas or diesel. So it's more difficult to store all that hydrogen. If you ever see a, a hydrogen fuel cell installation, it's got many, many, many tanks that are on that pad, wherever it is. And you they, they tend to be come in just the regular air tanks that you would see at any air gas station wherever you you go so it's just <clears throat> it's not quite the same thing as a diesel or natural gas generator it's harder to have the backup capacity it would need for a giant installation like a data center but <laughs> there are other types of generation that you can have on site that are not backup generation, but that are green generation. And the first one that everybody thinks of is solar. So you can just have a solar field that is directly on site and that provides generation right at your facility so that you don't have to use grid power to do what you're trying to do. The great thing about that is that you don't have to pay all the transmission costs to get the power from the solar the solar field to another place. There's always inefficiencies with transmission. There's always inefficiencies with uh, transformers taking additional power and, and transforming it up. So by creating solar grids on site, you can actually provide lower voltage power that goes directly to the units that you need to do. In fact, you can take the DC power that comes out of the solar panels, which solar panels are natively DC, you can take that power and then apply that directly to the DC that is in the server hardware itself, so you don't have to convert to AC ever if you have a DC distribution. So by creating a microgrid on a site, you eliminate really the need to ever change that native DC generation from the solar panel. You could even, if you were in a place where there were other data centers, you could even create a community solar grid so that you're providing power from that single solar grid to a number of different spaces nearby. The nice thing about all of that is that you don't really have to store it or sell it back to the grid because data centers are always using the power that's there. There's very there's a lot less variability to the amount of power used by a data center than from most other buildings in the world. And utility companies really like that. They would prefer that they could expect exact exactly what amount of power is going to be coming out of their transmission lines. So it's nice on a 
solar scale as well, that you know exactly how much power is going to be coming out. The There's also hydro as a on-site or near-on-site generation method. That's something that Google did at one point. The problem with hydro is that it has to be big. <laughs> it takes a lot of volume to water uh, to provide the amount of electricity that you need. So you have to have a giant dam and a lot of water in a reservoir behind it that will, as required, flow through and, and power your site. And very few people have that amount of volume. The, the It would be possible to store energy like a battery via hydro. It's called stored hydro. So you just pump, when you have cheap electricity, you pump it up to the top of whatever storage method you have. And then when you need the power, you let it flow back down. You need, it, it, this would be larger than just a regular water tower that you see along the side of the road. It needs to be the size of a dam. The water tower by the side of the road, if you were to have a giant pipe coming out of it that ran straight into a generator, you would maybe get five minutes of a megawatt, maybe less. <laughs> it's it's so much water that is required, and that needs to be from such a height because the height actually matters too because you get additional potential energy by pumping the water higher. Almost like, you know, when, when you drop something, it's going to hit harder when it hits the ground, when it's higher up. So it's prohibitive to have a pumped hydro in most places. But what do we have now? We have batteries. This is something that happened in Australia recently. Tesla put out a utility scale battery installation. It was about 10 megawatts which means that places like Australia that have a lot of power dips and have power quality issues can even that out and provide better power to whoever needs it by having these very large-scale battery installations. The problem from a utilities point of view with solar and other technologies like wind that are variable is that it doesn't coincide with the actual usage. So you can have a lot of solar energy and not a lot of people using it. So what do you do with that extra power? Well, you could conceivably turn one of your power plants off when you don't need it. The problem is that large-scale power plants take a long time to turn off. Some can't be turned off, like a nuclear reactor. Really, you don't want to turn that off. It's going to keep running. Uh, a coal power plant is going to take time to turn off. So they have smaller scale diesel generators, which can be turned off and turned on much more easily. That, again, creates that same problem with the emissions and things like that. So the great thing about battery storage is that even on a millisecond basis, it can provide that dip, the, the power required for even a millisecond dip. And the grid will just run more efficiently. If there is a time, which actually I am not in the electrical distribution side of the universe, but as far as I understand it, 
if there is too much power that has been put on the grid at any given time, then they have to get rid of it. They have to shunt it to ground. They have to have a big, big metal spike that goes into the ground that gets rid of that extra, that extra electrical potential. And with solar and with wind, that has happened more and more. So having, that's why, that's one of the reasons why the smart grid makes a lot of sense is to be able to allocate power as needed coming from those very fast switchable sources like batteries so that you don't have that problem of shunting to ground. Uh, one more that, again, it's not a big deal in the U.S., but another on-site generation possibility is, is on-site geothermal. That's something that has happened in Iceland because they have a lot of geothermal uh, you know, hot springs there. It's a very clean energy. It's very doable. The, the core of the earth is very hot, so it can provide a lot of energy if uh, properly utilized. Uh, it's not that there's just not available geothermal energy everywhere. If you're in Iceland, it works great. A lot of other places, it's just not possible. So if on-site generation of this kind isn't really possible or feasible. What a lot of companies do is they purchase offsets or they purchased wind power on the grid and they're paying for generation from wind power as opposed to some of the other more polluting types like coal and oil. That is effective. There's a marketplace for it. There's a marketplace incentive. Solar power has gotten a lot cheaper. But like we were just saying, the problem with that is that solar power is not as reliable or consistent as you would like. So there's always going to be some other dirtier power source that is providing some of that power at the at the moment. So even though you you're, might be paying 100% for solar, the, it is impossible for you to get 100% solar on those types of cases. But at least you're, you're evening out the economics of it so that you are at least providing incentives for solar companies to be out there because obviously at night you're not running on solar just doesn't happen that's why some of the offsets are more preferred by utility transmission companies like hydro hydro is a consistent source of power as long as there's water in the basin that you're pulling the hydro from you're always going to have power available the way that all of these offsets and the smart grid and transmission all links together is that it all needs to be coordinated. One of, one of the most interesting ideas that I had heard posited recently was that if you had very good metering at every single house that has a, an electric car, you could actually use all those electric cars to power the grid. So let's say that you overnight, uh, you have charged up your electric car and you have it plugged in overnight at your house. You could actually be powering the grid overnight because you had taken the very cheap electricity during the day, the solar electricity, charged your battery, and then you can sell it back to the grid at night. And if we had a smart grid that was able to do that at every single person's household, we could actually... Uh, even out all that solar uh, power 
so that it's not being transformed up and, and put into the grid and, and done at places where and times where people don't really need it. It could be stored in the however hundred thousand or million electric cars that are out there and use it on an as needed basis as close to the power as possible so that if every single person who worked at a given data center had an electric car and plugged it in when they got there, they could take the solar energy from their business stored in their car and then use that to power the grid at night. Uh, I'm not saying that that's feasible or, or even necessarily <laughs> something that we should aspire to, but as battery power gets better, as there are more batteries and battery and power storage technologies connected to the grid, the more efficient the grid will become. And data centers have this unique opportunity to be a part of that because data centers are this 24-7, very reliable, consistent electrical load that are very available to provide that extra solar or the off-demand battery usage. And, you know, there, there's so much opportunity within the data center space to really make this a green world that uh, I hope we all really take that to heart and make something happen with it. Okay, that's our show. I'd like to thank Green Lane Design for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about them, please visit greenlanedesign.com. You can find me on LinkedIn by searching for Drew Farnsworth. Our music is algorithmically generated by Jukedeck at jukedeck.com. You should really check them out. Our show is on Twitter, at data underscore good. And you can see updates for the show at gooddatapodcast.com. Be good, everybody. We'll talk to you next time on the podcast. <laughs>